Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. Today we start a new series on the seven churches in Revelation. And as we begin this series, we need to talk about how we actually read this book. Today I'm going to give you an overview of the book of Revelation because I want to ground all of us in how we read scripture and why our method of interpretation is important for all of us. This book is not about what many of us have thought it was about. It's not what we think it's about. And I think there's a lot of confusion around this book and I want to help us understand it. I love what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. You see, when you think of Revelation, what you tend to think about are words like antichrist and rapture, but the book doesn't ever mention rapture or the antichrist or an antichrist. The foundational conviction of the book of Revelation is that things are not as they seem. Or more exactly, things are not only as they seem. John is convinced 
convinced, excuse me, as a, as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ that there is more to reality than meets the unaided senses. This book, Revelation, is about discipleship. It's that simple. It is about our faithful devotion to Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, the lion, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In his work, on Revelation, Eugene Peterson suggests that in the book, we're not taught anything we have not already learned in the rest of the Bible. We, are, we uh, do not discover new truth in the book of Revelation. We are taught the already revealed truth in new ways. Peterson writes this, he says, I do not read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I have read it all before in the law and prophet, in the gospel and epistle. Everything in, the, in Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete and revealed in Jesus Christ. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. I read the revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. St. John uses words the way poets do, recombining them in fresh ways so that old truth is freshly perceived. He takes truth that has been eroded to platitude by endless usage and sets it in motion before us in an animated, impassioned dance of ideas. And perhaps this is why I'm most excited to preach from this book, to revive our imagination. Revelation chapter one, verse one says this, the revelation from Jesus Christ, Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Christ Jesus. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches, in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and ruler of kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be known to be a kingdom of priests and to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever, amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and every, uh, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the beginning of this great book, the revelation of Jesus given to John the apostle. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would use this time
to awaken our senses, to awaken our eyes, our ears. Awaken us to what is real and true. Awaken us to truth, what is reality, to who you are and what you have in store here and now. Let us see the scriptures alive. Let us see this word as alive and will help us to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. All right, so this Sunday, right now, we need time to orient ourselves to this whole book. We're gonna specifically look over the next few weeks at the seven churches in Revelation. So basically the first three chapters of the book. And we're gonna take a break after that to talk about vision as a church. But I believe these um, seven churches Uh, that were written in real time and place for specific churches that existed at the time John wrote this, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, have significant things to speak to us about. This text has significant words for here and now. But before we get into that over the next several weeks, I wanna talk about a few things. I wanna talk about the genre, the context, the author, where we find ourselves in this book. But let's begin first with talking about how to read scripture. This is going to feel like a lot of information, but I wanna encourage you to grow up, to be a disciple, to be a learner and a student of the word of God. This has to shape our perspective in life. So before we talk about revelation, let's talk about how we read scripture. You see, the Bible um, is written in human language to human beings. It came in time and place to real people. So therefore, it's subject to the same rules of interpretation as other books. So we need to pay attention to the original audience if we're going to get this book right. The Bible is not first God's word to us. It's first God's word to those whom it originally came to. And so for, for it, or in order for it to be God's word to us, we need to read it first as God's word to them. Does that make sense? We need to know as best as we can what it meant to them before we can fully understand what it means to us, especially this book, this book, Revelation. Anybody who reads the Bible for meaning interprets the Bible, And for the Garden Church, for Pastor Bill and I, we teach um, the authority of Scripture in a way that has its, um, its interpretation anchored in the author's intent. So in other words, the author's intent is our anchor for interpretation. That means a text cannot mean whatever Uh, excuse me, let me say that again. A text cannot mean what it never meant. We can't make the text something we want it to mean. A text cannot mean what it never meant. A text cannot mean whatever we think it means. A, A text cannot mean whatever our imagination or our hearts tell us it means. Um, All of these possible meanings of interpretation must be measured against what it meant to those to whom it was originally written to. So, the Bible has uh, rules uh, that we uh, use to interpret it. 
Um, this is called exegesis. It's our process of interpretation. And for the garden for the last 10 years, we apply that same process from gen- Genesis to Revelation. That we don't uh, cherry pick which verses um, we uh, use the tools for. We have to be intentional. Are you with me? If you want more information, about how to read the Bible. We have resources online, and we also have a midweek podcast that we've started that is going to help us with this this, uh, task of reading scripture. Second, I wanna talk about the book of Revelation. The year that it was written was most likely 96 AD. The author is the Apostle John, and he was the beloved disciple. He wrote the book of John. He uh, was a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, and now he writes this in his mid-80s, and he's a pastor of the churches around this province of Asia. He writes this from exile on a prison island called Patmos, which was a part of uh, the reason he uses cryptic language in the book of Revelation because he writes it knowing it's going to be censored by Roman government. The Roman government most likely put John there because Patmos was designed for criminals and troublemakers. And four years before 96 AD, in 92 AD, um, life became extremely difficult for disciples of Jesus living in the Roman Empire. Life had been hard before this. We know that in 67 AD, the emperor Nero was feeding Christians to lions and beasts. And the apostle Peter and Paul were already crucified um, before this, things got really bad. And in 92 AD, it got extremely bad. The emperor at the time was Domitian. He, uh, Domitian was a profoundly insecure man who lived um, in morbid fear of being overthrown. And to compensate for this insecurity, Domitian demanded that all of his subjects throughout the Roman Empire worship him as titled Lord and God. In the ruins of Ephesus today in modern Turkey, one can still see the remains of the Temple of Domitian, a place where all Roman subjects who requ- uh, were required to worship the emperor. He changed the name of the Roman Empire to the Eternal Empire. He called himself the Everlasting King. You had to worship him as a way of paying homage and allegiance to Rome. In order to worship him, you would go to a temple, you would take a pinch of incense, and you would cast it onto the, aisle, uh, the altar as a way of paying homage to Caesar as God. And the words you would use in Greek was translated to Caesar is Lord. That's it. Take a pinch of salt throw or incense and throw it on the fire. But John, the apostle, we know so graciously refused to take a pinch of incense and cast on the altar, saying Caesar is Lord. Because to say Caesar is Lord was to be a heretic in the Christian belief. It was to worship an idol. For, for, for John, there was only one Lord, and that was Jesus. So from his perspective, from, excuse me, from the Romans' perspective, he was a troublemaker. In order to keep Rome unified, Rome saw that it's... Um, Uh, citizens had to worship Caesar. Worshiping Caesar was the glue that held the empire together. But John's gentle refusal became a way to threaten Rome's unity. So he had to be punished. We know that in 92 AD, Domitian had over 40,000 Christians killed and executed. 
But John, because he was a public figure at the time, he was exiled to Patmos. And it's in Patmos that John writes the letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor. In Asia Minor. Any letter that John would write would be censored by uh, prison guards. So he writes a style, in a style that allows him to convey his message under Roman authorities that in order for them to not understand, which is why they probably didn't see revelation as a threat to their empire and they just dismissed it as a senseless man rambling under stress while in prison. And what you have to understand that, that this, this letter is so brilliant and uh, this letter was actually written to seven churches and later it would be circulated to other churches outside of those seven. But he writes Revelation in a unique genre. It's not an unfamiliar genre, but it's a genre that would have been understood at the time. We have different genres in the scriptures. We have poetry and historical and narrative and epistles. This particular genre is apocalyptic, which we'll get to in a second. So John writes a letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and he writes Revelation, the title of this letter, in a unique genre that matters. We have to read this letter based on the genre it's presented or written in. So for most scholars, they agree that there are three kind of simultaneous genres happening in one letter. Uh, Revelation is simultaneously apocalyptic, prophetic, and it's an epistle. It's an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter. So as an apocalypse or as an apocalyptic literature, it reveals what must soon take place. As a prophecy, it testifies to the word of God and Jesus Christ. And as a letter, it addresses the seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. So the three genres put together in one letter is what we read Revelation as. The first genre is epistle. We have to understand that this is a letter to the churches listed um, in chapters one, two, and three. John writes this to the seven churches in Asia. He says, grace to you and peace. The point being that the revelation is written by a specific person, John, to specific persons living in specific cities at a specific time in history to meet specific needs. Are you with me? This means we must take seriously the specific historical context if we are going to rightly understand the message. John is first and foremost a pastor writing a pastoral letter to people he is pastoring. What he writes would therefore be addressed to issues they were facing in their context. And what he wrote would speak uh, to and make sense to those issues. Revelation begins and ends as a letter to a group of people he had relationship with. Can I get an amen? And maybe some of you are confused by this, but we can't just take the concepts of revelation and apply them to today without understanding the context to which they were written to. I'm obviously so passionate about this, mainly because we confuse this letter and we, we make best-selling books off of ideas that have nothing to do with what John was intending to do with this letter. Are you with me? Second, the genre is apocalyptic. 
And apocalyptic literature enables hope and resistance by revealing truth about unseen present realities. Things like God and heaven and hell and unknown future events and realities. Things like judgment and salvation. And the two centuries leading up to the time that John writes this had dozens and dozens of famous Jewish and later Christian writings in the same genre. We know that Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and, and Matthew chapter four are all different parts of apocalyptic works. Apocalyptic literature has unique features about this, so it's no surprise that we see people are, are represented in the likeness of animals, thus the lamb, and thus the beasts. Historical events, according to apocalyptic literature, are presented in forms of natural phenomena, like earthquakes and floods, are you with me? Colors have significant meaning. Um, numbers have significant meaning. It's not literal. It has to do with apocalyptic style. Are you with me? Oh, uh, there, uh, the most significant thing about apocalyptic literature is the driving force. Apocalyptic literature seeks to do two things. First, it seeks to set the present in light of unseen realities of the future. For if we know what the future holds, it determines the choices we make in the present. And second, more importantly, is that it seeks to set present, the present in light of the invisible realities that are present. Fundamental, like for example, things are not as they seem. There is more to reality than the unaided eye or ears. There is more to the present historical moment than we can deduce. And what apocalyptic writing seeks to do is to unveil the unseen realities of the present, to pull back the curtain and, and to show us what's really going on behind the scenes. So we'll see beasts and dragons and all sorts of things. This is like uh, the curtain is pulled in Oz and there's just a man sitting there behind the Wizard of Oz. The third part of Revelation is that it's prophecy. We see John say five different times um, that the angel calls the work the prophecy. Its purpose of the prophecy is to show the things which must take place shortly, must shortly take place. The phrase is repeated near the end of the book, to show the things which must shortly take place. That's in Revelation 22, verse six. In the biblical world, the word prophecy doesn't mean prediction. It means declaration. The heart of biblical prophecy uh, is not to look at what's coming, but it's to declare, thus says the Lord. This is not to say that God does not enable some of his people to predict the future, but it's simply to know that God enables prophecy. God enables some of his people as prophets to declare the things that God is concerning about, to declare his will. So calling the book of Revelation prophecy means God is revealing something that requires a response in the very moment it's formed. There needs to be a, a, a new form of obedience to his will because God has spoken and God is speaking. Are you with me? So the Genre matters. It's prophetic, it's epistle, it's apocalyptic. The other thing about this book is 
the structure. The structure of this book matters. There are only 404 verses, 404 verses in the book of Revelation, but there are over 500 references to the Old Testament. So if you want to understand the last book of the Bible, you need to read the entire Old Testament or the entire story of the New Testament, Old Testament together because the key to understanding this is knowing what's already taken place. The structure of this book is simply organized into, um, by one word. There's one word that kind of breaks the, the, the structure of Revelation down. And if you pay attention to this word, it's used four times, it, it breaks up the book into five major sections. And the word is open. John uses the verb open four times. And this divides the book into five main sections and a total of seven parts if you include the prologue and the ending. So if you remember those four reference points, op- uh, open ref- uh, it happens, excuse me, open is seen in uh, Revelation 4 verse 1, Revelation 11 verse 19, Revelation 15 verse 5, and Revelation 19 verse 11. So th- these four sections, these four um, this term used four times, excuse me, uh, is, is like us double-clicking on a mouse on our computer. Think, think of the word open like a double-click on the computer. You double-click it and a new window pops open. And it changes where the book, where the message flows. This, these, uh, those verses divide the, the entire work into five major sections. The other thing to know about the structure, and this is so important, is that Revelation is not chronological. The series of visions that John is given and presents are not presented in order. They're not presented in the way things happened historically throughout history. They're presented in order, in an order in which John saw them. So one happens and another happens and another happens, but they don't happen chronologically, historically. They happen based on the way John saw them. And the clearest example of this is the fourth window. When John opens to, uh, the word open happens in chapter 11, verse 19, which then moves into chapter 12. The, this window describes an event that takes place long before John is arrested and exiled on Patmos. Revelation chapter 12, verse three, describes in apocalyptic language what happened on the first Christmas Eve. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman, and she was with a child, and another sign, a great dragon, and he, he stood before this woman and was about, uh, as she was about to give birth, and then she, uh, as she's about to give birth, the, he, the dragon wants to devour the child, and she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is the one to rule the nations. Revelation 12 is the theological center of the book of Revelation, and the reality um, and the, the reality is it conveys what took, took place way before Revelation chapters one through 11. It's the story of Christmas Eve. It's the story of Jesus' birth told through the lens of apocalyptic literature. So we don't see that section of the book as something that's coming. The word open takes us to a vision, a, a flashback to what's happening behind the scenes of Christmas Eve. Are you with me? Now, I know this is a lot, 
But I want you to understand this particular book because it's so important for us as disciples. There are some themes that you need to know. 40 times in Revelation, John says, I saw, I saw. 32 times he says, I heard. John sent his work to the seven churches intending this long letter, the longest letter in the New Testament of all the letters. He he intended this work to be read out loud. And the primary encouragement of Revelation is to not trust and obey but to listen and look, to look and listen. Especially look, look at what John is saying. Look at what he's saying and seeing. John is telling us we are having a hard time trusting and obeying Jesus Christ in our life because we are not listening and looking. Or a better way to say it is we are not listening and looking the way, uh, in the right way. We need to see things through the lens based on the revelation of scripture. John is a pastor and he knows that we will face opposition, but we need courage to overcome the powers of the age in order to follow Jesus well. He'll say with a reckless abandonment, look, he is coming in the clouds. Look, I am alive forever and uh, forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Look, a throne and one sitting on it. Look, a lion has overcome. Look, the lamb standing on Mount Zion. Look, a white horse, and he, he who sets upon it is called the faithful and true. Look, the tabernacle of God is among people, and he will dwell with them. These are all passages from Revelation. So John gives us a structure to help understand the importance of his message, to empower us to know what this word is about, what he's doing, um, and what God is giving us. So there are themes throughout Revelation that empower us to be encouraged. I'm saying all of this because I'm gonna focus on the first few chapters, but I believe to understand the context of the whole book is also helpful. The other important themes is number one, what you need to know about the great unseen realities is Jesus is coming. Number two is that the time is near. Uh, that, that is a direct reference to the announcement of the kingdom of God where Jesus announces the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. John wants you to know that uh, the, 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 in the present reality, the time is near, the kingdom has come, it's near, it's close. And the third, third unseen reality is found in the statements of Jesus saying, I am. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am reveals who God is, that Jesus is the great I am. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is the archetype and he is the telos. He is where the story ends. Are you with me? So Revelation is a deeply empowering, fascinating book. It's been misinterpreted by lots of people for lots of good reasons, but I hope to bring clarity to this book. And I know this feels a bit more like a Bible study, but here's the point. I wanna end with this. The point of Revelation is simple. It calls us to radical discipleship, to all-out courageous loyalty to Jesus in a world feverishly worshiping the beast. We, as disciples of Jesus, are devoted to Jesus and his way. That's it. That's what this book is about, to be loyal, courageously loyal to Jesus.
And to end with Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride says come and let the one who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of, of, of the water of life come. He who testifies to these, these things says yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. He is coming soon, and we must prepare our lives for his arrival. Brothers and sisters, I hope you are hungry for him, and I hope you are thirsty for more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church. Spirit